You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. In today's episode, what I'm going to do is talk about the four different types of shock and specifically what their treatments are for each one. Now, the four different types of shock that I'm going to touch base on are hypovolemic, cardiogenic, distributive, or also vasogenic, depending on which book you're reading, and obstructive. And to get us started, I'm just going to start with hypovolemic shock. So hypovolemic shock is strictly, it's like the easiest shock to understand because ultimately it's just low fluid volume in the body, in the intravascular system. And because we have the low blood volume in the system, we have low cardiac output. Low cardiac output means low perfusion to everything, which means that cells are dying because they're not getting adequate perfusion, which is bringing the oxygen and the nutrients and removing the waste product from these cells. Now, hypovolemic shock in and of itself, when we think about how much fluid volume that someone needs to lose in order to be classified as hypovolemic shock, you have to think about how much circulating volume the average person has, which is roughly about five liters of blood. Now, give or take, this is going to be lower or higher based on gender and also height. So there is some variance with this. But if we just use the example of someone who has about five liters of blood circulating in their system, losing 15% of the overall fluid volume status the person will start to show some initial signs and symptoms of hypovolemic shock. And if you think about five liters, well, one liter is 20% of someone's whole blood circulating volume. That's significant. Now, the reasons why people get into hypovolemic shock are a few. There's a few reasons. The first one is hemorrhage. And this seems pretty straightforward, whether their leg has been amputated in some traumatic accident and they're hemorrhaging out that way. Maybe they have some sort of GI bleed and they've been internally bleeding, losing circulating volume that way. It can also be the result of GI loss. So specifically diarrhea. If we're losing fluid volume, right, it doesn't necessarily have to be blood to be a precipitating factor for hypovolemic shock. It can, in fact, be other reasons. If someone is over-diuresed, so in your elderly population who have a history of heart failure, who are taking a diuretic medication in order to manage that, it's actually not that hard to give them too much of that medication. They diurese too much, and then they end up in hypovolemic shock. Another classification of patients that often end up in hypovolemic shock are those with significant burns. And that's because when you lose your epi epidermis, that whole top layer of your skin, it's really hard to control how much fluid you, you essentially are oozing out. Um, it just is, that's part of the consequence. The skin is a protective barrier. And when we lose those layers, we don't get to keep that fluid in. And then we can just ooze it out in that exudate that many of those burn individuals have going on. So when we think about hypovolemic shock, let's talk about nursing management and what these patients are going to look like. Here's your pie. How are they going to present your pee of the pie? So if we think about their vital signs, again, in hypovolemic shock, we are going to see changes to all of the vital signs. Their blood pressure is going to be low. Their heart rate is going to be high and their respiratory rate, respiratory rate will also likely be high. This is part of the compensatory factor. And if you go and you listen to the episode 
on the stages of shock, you'll understand that when we get into a shock state in hypovolemia, we see these alterations because there's just not enough fluid volume. Similarly, the body and its compensatory mechanism will shunt the blood away from non-vital sources like the GI tract, but also the skin. And we have this vasoconstrictive effect that goes into play, which causes skin to become pale, cool, and clammy to the touch. Now, how do we manage hypovolemic shock in these people? Well, stop the fluid loss. So whatever, you have to identify the cause of what is precipitating the shock-like state. So whether that's an amputation, put a tourniquet on and stop the bleeding. If they have massive loads of diarrhea, right? (laughs) Give them something to slow their GI motility down. And then you have to restore circulating volume. Airway is also very important. Airway and oxygenating to maximize the carrying capacity of the red blood cells that are perfusing is essential. With that restoring of the circulating volume, we're talking start some large bore IVs. If they are so depleted and you can't put an IV in, then we would put an intraosseous line in through the bone, like on the tibia, or even a central line. And we give fluids, whether that's normal saline or some sort of colloid, even blood product could be used in the treatment of hypovolemic shock. Again, the cause is going to drive the care. And we would also potentially give some sort of vasopressors to help the system out in vasoconstricting, increasing the cardiac output and perfusing to the vital organs. So that is hypovolemic shock. Identify the cause, treat it, restore that circulating volume and ensure that adequate oxygenation is occurring. Now let's move into cardiogenic shock. How do we treat someone who's in cardiogenic shock? Cardiogenic shock is just when the heart cannot pump enough blood to meet the perfusion needs of the body. And this is not because of blood loss or fluid volume loss. This is the direct result of a pump problem being your heart. So when someone experiences cardiogenic shock, there is something wrong with the heart. And the reasons why this can occur is maybe there's some sort of filling or contraction issue, like an individual who experiences an acute myocardial infarction, especially if it's affected the left ventricle, we now have a contraction issue and the person cannot adequately contract with that systole to be able to do adequate cardiac output. Sometimes it's going to be the result of a dysrhythmia. If you have someone who is having sequences or runs of VTAC, right, there's not going to be adequate perfusion. Also, VTAC, you can either have stable or unstable VTAC and you treat it that way. Or maybe they have some sort of structural defect. So maybe they've got um, a myo or an endocarditis where the inside lining of the heart has been has become really inflamed and as a result it doesn't contract properly or maybe there's a faulty issue with the valves perhaps they have a hole in their septal wall somewhere that is shifting blood flow causing cardiogenic shock from occurring so the whole point is that in cardiogenic shock there is something wrong with the pump and it's not due to blood loss or fluid volume issues. It's due to the inadequacy of the pump actually doing its job. And when it cannot pump correctly, we have a decrease in cardiac output, which leads to a decrease in perfusion and then decreased oxygen to cells and all the organs leading to hypoxia and ischemia. So what do these patients look like? What are the signs and symptoms for someone who's in cardiogenic shock? 
Well, when the pump has failed, blood is going to backflow because every time it squeezes, it's not going to do its job with forward flow movement, but it might backflow. So if it's the left side of the heart has failed because they had a myocardial infarction and some of the heart wall muscle died as a result of that thrombus or ischemia, then we will have the potential for left-sided heart failure ultimately, which can lead to pulmonary edema. That fluid that backflows into the lungs because every time the heart squeezes in systole and there's not adequate forward flow or cardiac output, we are going to see the blood go somewhere else. And normally that's back where it came from. So these patients, if the left side of the heart is affected, are going to have dyspnea. They're going to have decreased oxygen saturation and increased respiratory rate, increased heart rate. And when you take a chest x-ray of these patients, you will actually see fluid in their lungs that cannot get out into the left atrium, into the left ventricle, because the heart has failed to adequately produce enough squeeze. If it's the right side of the heart, you're likely to see jugular vein distension right? Because if the right side of the heart, when it squeezes on systole, cannot get the blood to move forward from right atrium to the right ventricle to the pulmonary arteries, and it flows backwards, you're going to have backflow into the system. So that's why you get jugular vein distension, because that vessel gets clogged with blood blood volume that wants to get into the heart to go to the lungs. Your high central venous pressures will be apparent in these cases. So when we talk about hemodynamic monitoring for patients who are in shock and we utilize a CVP, a central venous pressure monitoring system or some sort of pulmonary wedge, you're going to see high, high pressure readings with this. All of this to say that the forward flow is impeded because the pump itself cannot adequately move blood forward on that systole squeeze. So you have decreased cardiac output. And ultimately, when we think about decreased cardiac output, what does that look like? These patients have weak peripheral pulses, right? Because there's, when you feel the radial pulse on someone, you're actually feeling the squeeze of the ventricles. Every time the bottom of your ventricles squeeze and we get that systole, that is the pulse that you feel in someone's wrist. So we're going to have weak peripheral pulses because cardiac output is poor. They're going to have a decreased systolic blood pressure. They might have chest pain again, because the heart is being starved for blood itself to be fed because the cardiac output is not significant enough or sufficient enough to even perfuse the heart necessarily. They're also going to have decreased cerebral perfusion, which is going to lead to an altered level of consciousness. And then their kidney and their skin will also decrease in perfusion. So what this means is the kidneys are going to decrease their output. So you're going to see less than 30 milliliters an hour in the adults. And the skin is going to look potentially pale, cool, clammy to the touch. They're going to have really terrible capillary refill. And so when we think about all of those components, the interventions and the goal of treatment with someone who's in cardiogenic shock is reperfusion therapy. And realistically, any component of shock that we talk about, the goal is reperfusion therapy because we know that shock is just a lack of adequate perfusion. So in cardiogenic shock, we want to increase cardiac output and we'll provide these patients with ventilation support with diuretics as needed. So we monitor for those signs and symptoms of tissue perfusion. We watch their vital signs. We look at their skin color and their capillary refill. We are making note of their urine output and what their mental status appears to be doing. And we're also listening to their lungs and listening for, is do we hear fluid? Is it diminished? What is their rhythm?
Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. The labs that we're going to do is we will look specifically because we know that cardiogenic shock is a pump problem, we're going to look at cardiac markers like troponin, which would be increased. And troponin is released when there's an injury to the heart muscle cell. Okay, We're likely also to look at BNP. That's going to be increased because that lab, that lab is released due to stretching from high blood volume in that ventricle. So when someone starts to have a failing heart, the blood volume often will increase, but as it squeezes, it's not adequate enough and we get minimal forward flow and the blood gets pushed backwards. So those stretch receptors are still going to release BMP. We might look for a lactate because of the anaerobic activity that's occurring. And when we might do a chest x-ray looking for pulmonary edema to see if they have that fluid buildup. So These patients need oxygen and a managed airway, and they will become intubated if necessary. And then in cardiogenic shock specifically, right, these, a lot of these patients, if it's significant and severe enough, will get an intraaortic balloon pump. And an intraaortic balloon pump deflates during systole and inflates during diastole. And it's a pump, it's a balloon that we basically put in the aorta. So as blood leaves the heart and you have that that three-vessel branch coming off of the aorta, we put a balloon inside there and it inflates right during diastole and deflates during systole. And then we'll use IV fluids, but we use IV fluids extremely cautiously because in patients with cardiogenic shock, it's not a fluid problem. It's a pump problem. And if we give them too much fluid, we are likely to stress the heart out more and cause more problems. And then we monitor their hemodynamics very carefully, either with a central line that we'll place measuring cardiac output, or we'll use some sort of pulmonary artery catheter, like a Swan-Gans catheter that we'll wedge in the pulmonary arteries. These patients in cardiogenic shock are also likely to get diuretics. And the diuretics are meant really to decrease preload They might get nitrates, and nitrates like nitroglycerin dilate the coronary arteries, increasing the blood flow to the heart that is already being damaged. We can then also give vasopressors and positive inotropes to help maintain organ perfusion adequately. Now, obstructive shock is the third one, and that's really when there is a physical obstructing preventing the heart from producing enough cardiac output. These patients, what they look like, their signs and symptoms is they are going to be short of breath. They're likely to have weakness or some sort of altered mental status, again, because the cardiac output is impaired, whether that's from a cardiac tamponade where the fluid in the pericardial sac is filling so much so that the heart can no longer allow blood to get in, or from a tension pneumothorax where the pressure buildup on one side of the thoracic cavity where the lung should be is so significant that it pushes against the heart, or from some sort of... um, 
pulmonary emboli even, where the blood just cannot get through. So we have, again, a lack of cardiac output. They're going to be tachycardic. They're likely to have an increased respiratory rate. They will be hypotensive. Again, they're probably also going to have jugular vein distension because it is a cardiac output issue. It's not a pump problem, but it's an obstructive problem that is preventing the blood from adequately getting through. And the way that we intervene on obstructive shock, this one is probably the easiest. Well, no, I'll take that back. Hypo, <laughs> the hypovolemic shock is the easiest, but obstructive shock is the second easiest because you identify the cause and treat it and maintain their ABCs and give them oxygen and then IV fluids as, need, as needed. But realistically, like when we think about obstructive shock, there is some sort of physical obstruction taking place. And if we can identify it and treat it, then we will solve the problem. For example, if it's a tension pneumothorax that is causing the obstructive shock from occurring, that's the cause, the culprit, we do a needle decompression and we put in a chest tube. Boom, we've just solved it and they are now no longer in obstructive shock. If it's the result of a cardiac tamponade, right? Then we would do a needle pericardiosynthesis, drain the fluid from the pericardial sac, and we have just removed the obstruction. If it's a pulmonary embolism, we would give these patients some sort of thrombolysis, or they would get an embolectomy where we would remove the clot, thus removing the obstruction that is causing the, the shock. So obstructive shock probably is the second easiest to fully understand which leads us into distributive shock. And distributive shock or vasogenic shock, depending on where you're reading your information, is massive dilation and systemic inflammatory response that basically leads just to the pooling of the blood. There's three big variations of distributive shock. Anaphylactic shock, which is caused by some sort of allergic reaction to food, drugs, or bugs, and it's the hypersensitivity that's actually causing the massive vasodilation, followed by septic shock, which results from infection that leads to sepsis and that systemic inflammatory response. And then you've got neurogenic, which occurs after a spinal cord injury. And that results in massive vasodilation without compensation because there's a loss of the spinal nervous system and it can't react the same way. Now, septic shock is this massive infection that's swirling about in your blood throughout your entire body, which causes what we, uh, you know, have identified as sepsis. And really, that's the release of those endotoxins, like from bacteria or viral or fungus or parasitic kind of endotoxins that release causing that vasodilation and pooling of the blood. Now, sepsis is a life-threatening organ dysfunction that results from a dysregulated host response to the infection. Ultimately, that breaks it down to SIRS, which is the systemic inflammatory response system, and that's related to the cytokine storm causing the vasodilation, fever, etc., so what we see in patients who have septic shock, right, it's septic shock is a subset of sepsis. So you have to have sepsis first before you can even get to septic shock. But when you get to sepsis, when you have sepsis, you are at risk for septic shock, which is a distributive or vasogenic shock. And it's just a subset where the circulatory and cellular metabolism abnormalities are profound, now, in septic shock, when we talk about that, there is persistent hypotension despite adequate fluid resuscitation. And these patients will require some sort of vasopressors. They will be tachycardic. They will have tachypnea, that increased respiratory rate. They are febrile because this is infection related. 
They will have an altered level of consciousness because of the lack of perfusion, and they will have decreased capillary refill or modeling of the skin, lack of perfusion, and hypotension. Now, this persistent hypotension leads to decreased perfusion, and because of that, it affects all of the systems. So what do we do? We need to maintain their airway and oxygen. We need to be able to oxygenate and increase the oxygen that is circulating with what the residual volume is. We do give them fluid replacement therapy. But again, oftentimes when patients hit septic shock, they remain in a persistent hypotension despite the adequate fluid resuscitation. So because of that, we will then also have to incorporate some sort of vasopressor therapy to be able to vasoconstrict the vessels to improve the blood pressure and the cardiac output. These patients also, like as a side note, if someone has sepsis, they need to have had two blood cultures drawn. And typically we take the blood cultures from two different locations on the person and we will cross compare them to make sure that we don't get a false positive. Once you've collected your blood cultures, you then start antibiotics. Antibiotics are absolutely necessary, especially if it's a bacterial based septic shock to be able to fight the cause of what is causing it. We can then also give IV corticosteroids, and because we're doing IV corticosteroids, we're now going to have to manage glucose levels because that's going to increase the gluconeogenesis that's occurring. And overall, we are monitoring these people for their level of consciousness, their cardiac status, their vital signs, their intake and output, and even their skin changes. Now, patients in septic shock require a really large amount of fluid replacement, and the volume resuscitation typically for those that have this is going to be anywhere between 30 to 50 milliliters per kilogram, and it is usually done with, with isotonic crystalloids to achieve the adequate fluid resuscitation. They can, in some cases, add albumin uh, when patients require like really substantial volumes, um, but that's not done necessarily all the time. Now, Antibiotics with people that um, have septic shock need to really be started within the first hour. And that's why it's imperative as a nurse, if you think your patient is septic, to draw two sets of blood cultures immediately because you don't want to start an antibiotic without having those blood cultures. Ideally, ideally, there will be cases where you cannot get a drip of blood out of someone. And are you going to withhold antibiotics that are going to help fix and solve the person's problem. While you don't have blood cultures, I personally in my own practice can say that, yeah, I've given antibiotics before I've gotten the blood cultures. Was that the best care to be able to provide? No, because it alters and it disrupts what we can grow in those blood cultures. So get the blood cultures. <laughs> That's realistically get two sets of blood cultures and then antibiotics need to be started immediately. And they will start antibiotics with a broad spectrum variation first while we are cultivating the blood cultures that we've just collected, which will take a day or two. And then we can give more tailored antibiotics once we know what the culprit and the bacterium is. And then in terms of the glucose levels, we really want to keep them below 180 milligrams per deciliter. And then we will also give these patients some sort of stress ulcer prophylaxis, like a proton pump inhibitor or protonics is the one that I've seen given most often. Because they're coming into hospital, we also do things like give them Lovenox to prevent DVTs and then really support them nutritionally as needed, whether they're eating or they're not. Because we, we know is patients must have that the protein in order to be able to repair themselves. So then we get into neurogenic shock and neurogenic shock 
um, is unique in that it is specific to patients with spinal cord injuries. And typically, we will see neurogenic shock occur within 30 minutes of a spinal cord injury at the level of T5 or above. And what this does is it results in the loss of sympathetic nervous system tone, causing the massive vasodilation without compensation. These patients in neurogenic shock, the big the big things that you'll see are going to be hypotension and bradycardia, right? That's opposite than what we've been discussing where you would see tachycardia. And that's because this is a spinal cord issue. They will also have an inability to regulate the temperature. They will be warm initially, and then they'll have cool skin. They'll have dry skin. It won't be clammy. And they will also likely have some sort of bowel or bladder dysfunction. The way that we treat neurogenic shock is with vasopressors and atropine. We use fluids really, really carefully in patients with neurogenic shock, and and we will monitor for the hypothermia. Collaboratively, what we need to ensure is that we have a good airway and we've got oxygen going and we have stabilized the spinal cord injury. We will treat the hypotension with vasopressors and we will treat the bradycardia with atropine. Um, we can then use fluids if as needed and then keep them warm because they cannot control their own body temperature. All this to say that when we talk about treatments of shocks, ultimately, it seems like it was kind of a a blurry episode, but ultimately treatments of shocks really just depends on what is causing the shock and the type of shock that the person is experiencing. And then we monitor them and their hemodynamic status with central venous catheters and pulmonary artery catheters. And we are assessing them all the time. We give them oxygen to increase tissue perfusion for what is being circulated. And then we consider fluids, whether it's isotonic or some sort of volume expanding fluid. In some cases, you might give blood, but more often than not, unless they have a hypovolemic shock as a result of major blood loss, we are avoiding blood products just because there's a risk of transfusion reactions. And then we give the medications as needed to increase or to treat the various hypotensions or tachycardias or bradycardias that we will see based on what the person is suffering from, the type of shock, and where they are in it. So the end goal is just to improve perfusion. <laughs> perfusion therapy, improved cardiac output is the goal for any shock that we're discussing. So that's all I've got on the different types of treatment potential for the four different types of shocks. Go forth and keep on learning. And if you've liked what you've heard, feel free to like it in the platform by which you're listening to this podcast in, or if there's a specific topic you would like me to try to cover, go ahead and let me know either by commentary or send me an email at nittygrittynursing at gmail.com.